name is Kevin Aberesk, or as the people at uh, my table over there call me, Kevin Aberesk. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize the word res is in my name. That's, that's pretty cool. It's important. So I currently work for a company called Indians.com. It's a Native American news website. It's uh, owned and operated by the Winnebago tribe. Do I have any Winnebago tribal members here? Awesome. <coughs> and uh, so I've worked there for about a year. I just uh, started there back in October of uh, 2017. Yesterday was my one year anniversary, actually. That's pretty cool. Uh, before that, I spent about 19, well, more like, you think here, 18 years at the Lincoln Journal Star here in Lincoln, Nebraska, <coughs> as a reporter and an editor. And uh, I'm going to start off, though, and kind of describe my younger years and, and just go from there. <laughs> All right, so I was born in uh, Grand Forks, North Dakota. My parents were uh, students at the University of North Dakota. That's where they met. And this is where I lived. I had actually a colleague at the Lincoln Journal Star who uh, found out that I'd grown up in the uh, student housing, like the married student housing section of the University of North Dakota. And he knew this because he grew up in, he lived in Grand Forks as well. So he found this photo for me. And as you see, it's like a... Those are like tin panels, you know, a corrugated tin paneling, um, or metal paneling, I guess. Um, so, yeah, pretty, pretty sparse. I didn't realize that that's where the married student housing was for the University of North Dakota. Uh, my parents split up when I was very young. Uh, in fact, I really have no memories of my biological father. Um, I got to know him later in life a little bit. Not long after I was born, my dad left, and mom moved us back to the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota. My mom's uh, Wallace Sioux. I'm actually enrolled in the Rosebud Sioux tribe. That's my father's tribe. And uh, I lived there probably until I was, I was probably in kindergarten or so. Uh, we moved away, and I came back for a year, about a year later. Um, but I have some really great memories from the, uh, from the reservation. Um, the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation is just a magnificent place. As far as geography goes, you know, it's right by the Badlands. Um, there's just gorgeous scenes like this everywhere you turn. You know? And I still dream about it sometimes, you know, going back there, moving back to the reservation, living there. Fortunately, as maybe some of you know, reservations often don't have a lot of job opportunities. And the job I have currently really doesn't exist there for the most part. But there's a strong focus on family and culture there. That's one thing I'll say about the reservation. Um, you know, we were, I, I grew up dirt poor in the reservation, but I didn't know that, you know. I didn't realize how poor we were growing up. Everybody was that poor. In fact, we were one of the probably more wealthy families in the village. Um, whenever we would have a feast, we'd have everybody come and take part in that feast, and that was sort of our way of, of showing our appreciation for the community. Um, but my cousins were my brothers and my sisters. Um, my aunts and uncles were my mothers and my fathers. Um, I didn't know any different. I'd wake up every morning, I'd walk across the street to my cousin's house, and we'd play all day, you know. Um, that was my life. It was an incredible experience. I'm glad I got to experience it. Unfortunately, uh, Pine Ridge is also a place of a lot of despair. I'm sure a lot of you know about these stories, such as White Clay. Um, you know, I actually covered White Clay, Nebraska, for many years at the Lincoln Journal Star. And, and one of the things that I wrote about a lot was this issue of this, you know, the plains, this, you know, almost four million cans of beer that sold, that was sold there every year uh, to this dry reservation presently. Um, now, as you may know, about a, oh, has it been about a year? It's been about a year, I guess, since, um, was it the Nebraska 
Liquor Control Commission shut it down. They actually rejected the licenses, the alcohol licenses. So, so there's no alcohol sold in White Plain anymore. Um, the people that used to live there on the streets are, for the most part, gone. Um, but I'll say that growing up on Pine Ridge, I mean, White Plain was prevalent. White, White Plain was everywhere, in a sense, because everybody needed to go there at certain times of the day. I had family members who drank a lot. And I know every afternoon at a certain time, almost like clockwork, I'd have an uncle who would come and ask my other relatives if he could get a ride to White Plain. And somebody would always you know, get in the car, drive into White Plain, and get his beer, and he'd come back and drink it. Um, but I also say that it's, it's also a place where you know, there's a lot of other things going on, too. You know, they sell groceries. They sell goods. I bought my first pair of tennis shoes there. And I think those are Converse. I tried to find Converse, because I think that's what I purchased. My first pair of tennis shoes were. My family has a strong legacy of activism. Um, this is a portrait of my great-grandmother, Cecilia Jumpingbull. And it was actually painted by Leonard Peltier. Um, she's sitting in front of her home, which is on this place called the Jumping Bull Compound, which is where I grew up, where I played all the time growing up. I didn't know much about the history of that place growing up. I didn't learn much about it. My family didn't like to talk about it. But I knew that I'd, I'd see these holes in the, in, the, in the house, in this adobe house that where my grandma grew up all the time, and I was kind of wondering what that was. I figured somebody was taking shots at the house, you know, with a 22 or something like that. It wasn't until college that I realized and learned that there had been this massive shootout there. So, you know, back in, um, let me get the years wrong, but I think it's 1975, there was a shootout there in which um, uh, a group of American Navy movement members engaged uh, federal law enforcement after some law enforcement people had traveled onto their lands looking for a name member. And this is the shootout where, as you may know, Leonard Peltier was involved in, in some way. Um, he was later convicted of killing two FBI agents uh, on my great-grandparents' land. Um, so I, it's weird, though, because my family never talked about that growing up. It was, a, it was kind of a stain. I mean, it wasn't something we were proud of. We weren't, like, you know... I mean, yes, we were proud of Leonard Peltier. We were proud of the American Indian Movement. All of those things were, were sources of pride for us. I grew up revering people like Leonard Peltier and Russell Means and Dennis Banks and Clyde Bellacourt and Vernon Bellacourt. These were names I heard every day in my household. Um, but as far as that history of that, that shootout, that wasn't something we were proud of. So I didn't learn about it until I was much older and in college. Now, when I was probably in about kindergarten, as I said, we moved away. I moved around a lot after that. My dad went to college at the University of South Dakota. When he got his first job, we went to Winter, South Dakota. And after that, I went to Gregory, South Dakota, and got his next job. Um, moving around meant losing friends, making new ones, um, but also meant being away from my reservation family. That was very hard for me. I became disconnected, really, from my reservation life. I remember coming home probably when I was in about third grade or so, and I had an uncle there. Um, his name was Shorty Bernard, and I couldn't even tell you his real name, but, but that's, how, that's how I knew That's how everybody knew for Shorty. Shorty Bernard. Um, I came home once to the reservation and uh, wanted to talk with Shorty. You know, he was my favorite uncle. He always give me money whenever I saw him. So, so I went up to talk to him and he, he pushed me away. You know, when I went first went to talk to him and he said, you know, you need to go back uh, to your town where you live now. You're, you don't you don't live here anymore. You're you're not Indian anymore. Um, and that that really hurt me. You know, when I was young. But, I mean, he was speaking from a place of pain. You know, he was speaking from a place of, you know, he really missed me. And I, that's how I've sort of taken it since now, is that it was his way of sort of acting out of that, that pain. But 
Unfortunately, that's, that's been the case throughout much of my life, is having lost that disconnect, that connection to the reservation. It's been a journey for me to reconnect. And I have to some extent, but, but it's a constant journey. You know, it's not something you ever completely reconnect to your culture once you lose that connection. I spent most of my life as kind of a, somebody living on the border between the Native American world and the non-Native American world. Um, as I was telling the, the table over there, uh, my stepfather actually raised me. My last name, Aberesk, is actually a Lebanese name. Uh, my stepfather is Lebanese uh, by birth. And, uh, and I took his name. I mean, he raised me since I was probably in kindergarten. Um, that's how long I've known him. And it just seemed right, I guess. But I was born Kevin Miller. That was my, that was my biological father's name. So I have three half-siblings that I grew up with, and they're all non, you know, half-native, half-non-native. Um, of course, I have a non-native father, stepfather. And uh, so I just always, I've always kind of walked that line, I guess, in my life. And, but, it, but it's given me some strength. You know, it's given me some, some abilities, I guess, that maybe I wouldn't have otherwise. It's allowed me to sort of understand both worlds and communicate between the two worlds. Uh, maybe that's part of what led to my career, I guess, as a journalist. Is, you know, somebody who kind of <laughs> feels the need and maybe has some ability to communicate these experiences back and forth but primarily you know, trying to communicate the Native experience to the non-Native world. College years, I went to the University of South Dakota, and uh, you know, it was, I had a great time there, but I also had a lot of struggle there. You know, I drank a lot when I first got to the University of South Dakota. I had a hard childhood, you know, I had a stepfather who was, well, he was fairly abusive in some ways. Um, we get along great now, and he's really gotten better in his older years, but when he was younger, you know, he had a really strong temper, and, and so um, my siblings and I suffered a lot, quite honestly. Um, so when I first went to college, I mean, I was acting out of that. You know, I, was, I was acting out a lot. I was drinking, I was going to a lot of parties, uh, kind of getting a lot of trouble. Uh, when I turned 21, I actually went to, to treatment. I was still in college when I did this. Um, I left in about November or so. This was in 96. And I went to this treatment program. Uh, it was actually at the foot of Bear Butte in South Dakota, um, called Sacred Hills Treatment Center. And I spent 30 days there, and it changed my life. I wouldn't be here standing in front of you right now if I hadn't gone to that treatment program. It was 22 years ago. Actually, this is a little bit old. This presentation took five So this is my life today. I've got five children, as you can see. And uh, I'm actually a 19-year veteran journalist today. Um, our three youngest children we've adopted, those are the three right in the middle, as you can see. The boy in the blue, the girl in the turquoise on the right here, the both biological. But had Samuel on the left, and in the back, my wife is holding Jessa. Uh, she's now five. Zach is in the middle, and he's ten. Jasmine's seven. And then Maya is on the right here. Maya's actually home with the sore throat. When I left, I asked her if she, asked her if she was going to be okay for an hour, and she said, yeah. <laughs> I got my uh, master's degree in journalism. Well, first I got my bachelor's degree in English from the University of South Dakota back in 98. Uh, I got my master's degree in journalism here at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, actually, back in 2012. Um, you know, getting my master's didn't really plant anything concrete. It's a, I, I didn't get a pay raise. I didn't get any sort of benefits necessarily from it. I can't necessarily get a job just because of the master's I had. 
necessarily. I mean, there are some of that, but I always say it makes me feel better. It makes me feel like I accomplished something. Like I took that extra step, I guess, in my education, and I invested in myself in some way. Um, so it builds my confidence, if nothing else. Um, and I do think it, it is it is good to see on a resume. I think I don't think it hurts. <laughs> so that's about it. Um, any questions? Anybody? Oh, one thing that I guess Dave asked me to, to describe real quick is what I do today. So I didn't, I didn't do that much at the start. Um, so today, um, my title is actually managing editor, and uh, I work for Indians.com. Have any of you ever heard of that website? Yeah. It's a Native American news website. It's Indians with a Z. And uh, basically, what we do is we cover national Native American news. Um, but the way we do it is sort of interesting. We have a program, it's a scraping program, that every day it goes through all these different websites we've plugged into it. And it finds certain keywords, like American Indian, Native American. And we have to look for Indian, too, because the Associated Press, their style for Native American is actually the word Indian. So we have to look for that as well, which obviously brings up a lot of other kinds of stories. But every day, we get this program sends us an email, a long list of possible headlines we can post on our site. We decide which ones we want to put on our site. Uh, we put them into you know, our platform, basically, to post them on our website. And then we write about a five or six paragraph summary of each story. Um, and then we also pick out like what stories we want to write ourselves, if they're in, within that list that we want to write ourselves. Now, typically, we don't do that. We, there's only two of us that work for the site. I should mention that. Um, there's my editor, A.C. Agoyo. Uh, he's Zuni Pueblo. He lives in Washington, D.C. He's actually an MIT grad, pretty amazing guy. But, um, he works in Washington, D.C., and so he does most of that kind of technical work. Um, and my job is more to find stories that nobody else is, is writing about, to make you know, unions.com kind of a destination for people, for news that they can't get anywhere else. So, so that's kind of my lead. Hopefully, I, I'm doing OK with it. Um, I will say that unions.com is, is um, just a great place to work. I mean, it's allows me to travel. I actually was in Northern California about two weeks ago. I got to write about these 30 indigenous leaders from Latin America, from South, Central and South America, uh, who were on the Yurok Reservation, just uh, outside the Redwood Forest. And they came there to learn about the Yurok tribe's efforts to preserve their wildlife and their forests. Um, so I got to be there for three days and learn about you know this tribe, this Yurok tribe, and what they do there in Northern California. And it was an amazing trip. I mean, it was, you know, gorgeous places right on the coast. Um, the Redwood Forest is right there. Um, it's just an amazing place to be. Uh, this Saturday, or actually Sunday, my son and I, Samuel, uh, we're going to be traveling to uh, Alaska. We're going to Anchorage, Alaska. And um, we get to cover a conference there. It's a um, uh, Alaska Federation of Natives conference. So that's pretty cool. I've never been to Alaska before. I wanted to take my son. But anyway, it just allows me to travel. It allows me to sort of experience things that I wouldn't experience otherwise. Probably. A lot of other professions wouldn't allow me to experience. So. Um, but my journalism, journalism has taken me all over. I mean, I've been to Bosnia, I've been to Paris, France, I've been, you know, all over the country on various reporting trips. And, um, so I really love what I do. Unfortunately, journalism is suffering right now. As many of you may know, um, newspapers are really struggling. It's tough to compete with the internet, you know. Every, you can get everything, almost everything you want online anymore. And so what incentive is there to spend $50 a month on a newspaper subscription? 
So that's the conundrum. So newspapers are facing. That's part of the reason I had to leave. Was that instability, you know, constantly losing colleagues. When I started back in '99, we had 30 some reporters. When I left, we had 10. Um, and that's how newspapers are all over the country. They're shrinking and shrinking. That kind of journalism is going away, which is very unfortunate, you know, for our society. Um, we have fewer and fewer reporters, watchdogs, watching what government is doing, what you know, officials are doing. Are they spending our money wisely? Are they, you know, scamming us? What are they doing? It's unfortunate to see that kind of decline.